0: So, welcome to another interview in our digital pandemic series. Today, we are talking to Dr. Carolina Arias, who is an assistant professor of molecular, cellular, and developmental biology. Her lab at UCSB focuses on virus host interactions, and she has previously researched Kaposi's sarcoma associated herpes virus and Zika virus. While recently, she has been involved in UCSB's response seminars to the advent of the COVID 19 pandemic, as well as COVID 19 related research. So, hi, welcome. Thank you for being here with us today. So I guess we wanted to just get into our first question as kind of an introductory question, which is you are someone who has obviously spent your whole research or whole career researching viruses. So we were wondering, how has that process changed now that you're actually living through a global pandemic? Do you feel the goals and or stakes of your research have changed? And then further, We are wondering about some of the more physical changes with social distancing and/or quarantine, and how that might have affected your research project, and access to labs or other equipment, and so on.
1: Sure. Well, thank you, everybody, for having me here. It's it's great to see these great approaches that you guys have to this pandemic. Let's start with that question. So, how, as a virologist, has this pandemic impacted my my view of Virology and the view of my own research. Well, first, I never thought we were going to be living in my lifetime through something like this, right, is since I started teaching Virology here, I've made an effort to start my classes with highlighting the viruses that are in the world. So basically trying to see how different epidemics or outbreaks are impacting different regions in the world and what are the repercussions of some of those for us here in the US and here in our community. And so by looking at some of those, there's always the risk for a pandemic. We are aware that viruses are around, that viruses are everywhere, and that some of these small outbreaks that can be detected in other parts of the world could get out of control. However, I never thought it was going to come to something of this magnitude. It is, uh, for me, very interesting from the point of view of a virologist to see what we're going through with this virus. It's pretty unique in a lot of different aspects. There is a lot to to be learned from coronaviruses and from the SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's from the intellectual point of view, it is pretty amazing to see how much knowledge we have gathered in the past just near six months. And it's incredible to see how the scientific community has come together to learn a lot about the viruses. like, I think probably every, almost every single virologist in <laughs> the face of the planet has been trying to learn a little bit more about the coronaviruses and has somehow changed the, the, the focus of uh, their research, including my own as I'm going to tell you in a moment, to to do something to help with this pandemic. At the same time, it's heartbreaking to see that regardless of the effort and all the science and all the evidence that has been gathered again in so, so short time that the disease and the control measures and the treatments and the vaccines, everything has been so politicized. And that has really crippled the response that we could have had, especially um, here in the US. So again, it's, it's very intellectually challenging and rewarding to see what's going on from the point of view of science and how much the scientists have done to be able to help understand the virus, understand the disease and develop new ways to control it, to treat it, to diagnose it. And at the same time, it's just really heartbreaking to read the news and see how many people are suffering, and how many people are dying, because information that many of us are generating is just not being taken. In regards to our goals and how it has changed, so when, and I'll tell more about the story later, but when we started seeing that this was a serious issue, it was probably I'll say between mid-February to late-February, we started seeing that the situation was not being controlled as some other coronaviruses um, epidemics have been controlled in the past. For example, you know, this is not the first one, it's not the first coronavirus that causes severe disease, like there's been others, um, one in 2002 and one in 2012. And those, um, although some of them did reach other countries and one of them was declared a pandemic, they were controlled. So around, again, mid end of February, we started noticing, like, OK, so the cases are rising. Um, Is not in you know, in an outbreak in China anymore. It's actually not all throughout the world. There's something that needs to be done, because it's going to get very serious very quickly here in the US and here in our communities. So I remember we got together with three other faculty in our department, Diego Costa, Max Wilson, and Ken Cossett. And we just started talking of how we needed to do something, how we needed to act because the situation was only going to get worse and we needed to be prepared for something. And so we thought, okay, what can we do? How can we use our expertise in different areas of biology and in different areas of science to be able to come together and respond quickly. There are many ways that you can, you know, address these kinds kind of diseases. So one is you have to know who has it so you can do diagnostics. Two is you can prevent it so you can develop vaccines. And three, you can treat it so you can develop drugs. But in our position, developing a vaccine or developing drugs is very difficult. We don't have the expertise, we don't have the resources, we don't have the technologies here that would allow us to do them. But the diagnostics, that's where we saw that we had an opportunity to make a contribution. We know molecular biology, the molecular biology of the assays is not pretty complicated. I know some thing about virus host interactions and I, I became, um, I, I tried to absorb as much information as I could about coronaviruses really quickly so that we could understand better how um, we could do these, these assays in a, in a high-throughput or in an accessible way. And then we saw okay and that is going to really give us an upper hand we are able to do it here because we could monitor our community and know who has the virus and that's one of the main ways that you can actually control the outbreaks by keeping a close look at how the virus is distributed in the community so that's when we decided to do two things uh, simultaneously so one was uh, uh, adopt all the approaches that up to that point had been developed and had been kind of um, vetted for diagnostics which is what the CDC and the FDA recommended at that point. So we basically said, okay, we're going to establish the possibility for us to do diagnostics here. So we just got all the reagents and we prepared all the protocols and we had everything ready um, by mid-March to be able to set those diagnostic platforms. So that was just one, that diagnostic platform here. And we validated it and it worked and it was pretty good from the get go. But we saw that there was going to be a problem with that platform, which is called the RT-QPCR. And basically, we just take the, uh, the the genome of the virus, um, convert it into DNA, amplify it. And then if there is some viral RNA in that sample, we're going to be able to see it. And if there is not, we don't see it. So one of the limitations that we saw with that assay was that there was already, at the point when we got the reagents, very limited supply of the things that we needed to run the assays. And we knew that, again, the same as when we saw that the pandemic was, you know, creeping over, we saw that there was going to be a problem, right? So we decided to, in parallel, develop a method that was not going to rely on the same tools, and it was not going to rely on the same reagents, the limited reagents, as the gold standard method at that point so we developed a new method that is based on this um, technology called CRISPR which has been in the news you guys probably have seen some conferences here about it it is pretty um, well known Uh, it's called CRISPR um, for uh, and it's used for um, genome editing Mm. so we took a variant of it that is not you know the purpose is not to um, edit any genomes, but actually to detect them. So basically the the enzyme that we use, that I guess is a variant of CRISPR is, um, you can think about it and the way I like to describe it, is as a pair of molecular scissors, right? So we basically um, have this enzyme and we have the viral genome, but again, we amplify and if it's there, these molecular scissors are gonna recognize that the the genome is there or that the, the genome was in the sample and they're gonna get activated. And so these molecular scissors cut a reporter, and the, re- the reporter emits fluorescence. So it's basically a lights on, lights off assay. You have your lights on, there was a virus in the, in the sample. If your lights off, you didn't have any virus in the sample. And so, you know, we basically dedicated all the resources that we had in our lab um, from, you know, equipment and personnel and intellectual input to do that, to establish diagnosis, be able to run the standard method and to develop a new method. So my lab stopped, like everybody else has seen probably the planet. But we decided to continue doing this. And so we focused absolutely everything from the four labs to do this project. So there was a it was a drastic change, right? Because it's, you know, I had never worked with coronaviruses before. I am sure that some of my colleagues had never heard of coronaviruses before. <laughs> And so it was a, a pretty, you know, steep learning curve, And we were very um, keen on trying to get more information and all of us were very devoted to this project and working very hard on it. So that was all throughout, the development of the method was throughout March and I think we had it ready probably around April. So it was only about a month that it took us to develop it. And then we said, okay, we have the methods, right? But what do we do with them? It's not enough to just have a method if you cannot use it. So we decided to um, implement both methods, the gold standard that the CDC and the FDA recommend, and our method to do surveillance in the population. So we recruited 1,800 people that were just going to donate a sample. It was just an oropharyngeal well. swab, And we would monitor to see if the um, virus was in these people. The condition that we had was that all of them had to be asymptomatic. They could not have any COVID-19 symptoms. So no fever, no cough, no shortness of breath, no nothing. Just had to be asymptomatic healthy individuals. And so we did um, use both methods for every single formula. Actually, most of of the samples are all of them. And then we did two times. So we did at the end of May, then we took a break in the collection for summer break because there was no people, so we could not test. And then we came back and then we did at the end of May of uh, June, beginning of July. So the first 700 people that we tested in the end of May, we had no cases. There was no And And we started thinking like, okay, is, is it really that we're not seeing any virus in our community? Or is it that something is going off and it's not working. I mean, our controls were working, so we didn't think it was that. We talked to other people in other communities, and they had done similar studies, and they wouldn't find anything. So we said, okay, we'll we'll see what happens when we come back. When we came back, we took samples the first day, and we picked up a positive. We took samples the second day, and we picked up more positives. And in total, from 1,000 people, we picked up nine cases. Eight of those were confirmed by by a clinical lab. So we had cases in our community. When we started seeing what was the difference between the first time and the second time, the first time Santa Barbara was in lockdown. In the second cohort, in the second time, Santa Barbara had been open for two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. So the enhanced interactions, the higher mobilization of the community, the people going around, provided a better environment for virus transmission. And we started seeing it. What was remarkable from that study was that there was a follow-up with some of the participants. And out of the eight cases that we had, two reported absolutely no symptoms, no fever, no nothing. So people didn't even think that they were infected. If it wasn't because we had seen it and confirmed it, they probably wouldn't even know or believe yeah. that we had the virus. It's yeah. it was just dramatic. None of the participants developed a fever, nobody had a fever. So we were shocked because one of the first things that they do is they measure your temperature to see if you have a fever. But some people don't develop a fever. Two people had a runny nose. So Mm -hmm. is it allergies or is it COVID, right? So just the fact that these people did not manifest any symptoms, Mm -hmm. but they were still carrying the virus at very high levels could make them more or or could increase the potential for these people to transmit it. Because, I mean, you don't feel sick. You're going to be going around. Yeah. Or you think that you have a, co- a minor, you know, itching your nose, so you're not gonna wear a mask around some of the people that you frequently, you know, gather with. So it was pretty interesting. The other thing was that all the participants that were positive were students.
0: Oh. So the average age
1: of the positive cases was 21 years old, and the average age over the whole study was like 28. So there was definitely a bias towards, <laughs> right? Which is it was kind of expected because these are people that are going to be circulating more in the community. One, two is no matter what you say, is young people are going to need to be social. This is really the time where you're building all these relationships, and they're not going to be, you know, in a house in a room for six months. It's like it's just not going to happen. So they're going to get together, and there's more chances of transmission. So. All of that was from, um, we ended that study in July. And then around that time was when we reopened our labs and we decided our, we, we were able to come back. Um, so we had to shuffle the resources back to our own research. So um, we kind of stopped that line of, of studies right there. It's like we, you know, we had developed a method, we validated the method, we used it in our community. So we felt that it had been a pretty successful round. We are pursuing FDA approval with that so that's one of the things that our lab is following up so we are doing some experiments to be able to get FDA approval and we are actually now going to start um, studying in my lab um, the biology of coronaviruses so we saw that really from the biology and the epidemiology and the ecology of this virus there might be other outbreaks in the future from coronaviruses And I think the more we understand them, and the more we know about their uh, biology and the way they interact with the host, the better prepared we're going to be to respond to future outbreaks, big or small, doesn't matter, we should be ready for for this. So I guess during the past, how long has it been, six months, all our energy was devoted to this project. Um, But now that we see that you know, the, the, the tools can be used for other purposes. So now we are trying to help set up the diagnostic lab here in campus. We are uh, planning to use our method, the CRISPR method, for surveillance here on campus. So now it's taking a, a more clinical and a more um, surveillance kind of detour or route. So our role as a basic research lab is going to be less and less significant and the clinical lab is going to be more and more involved in this so we are not cutting the cord but we're basically just like letting the story take its course and now that we have done our job it can be used for for the good of the university and again i hope <laughs> we're really trying very hard to go back to the lab and do some studies but it's, it's been difficult with social distancing
2: Yeah, so maybe we could talk about where you left off at the end of your previous question, which is think about the question of surveillance. Uh, And I bring this up and I think maybe Shurojit and Miley can also testify to it. But within the humanity, surveillance is sort of our number one arch enemy. It sort of refers to how the state wants to control and dominate marginalized communities, police communities and so on and so forth. So uh, humanity scholars are very much obsessed about the question of surveillance, especially when it relates to monitoring of uh, people but then we wanted to talk to you about surveillance on that related and how uh, science complicates surveillance but we also wanted to think about how the notion of visuality and visual culture plays into the question of surveillance surveillance uh, generally is often thought about as something that is acted upon through visual means so surveillance is the state's ability to look often look down upon at marginalized communities without them having the ability to look back at the state but then we wanted to think about generally the role of visuality in visual cultures within uh, within thinking of surveillance and uh, science and medical proceedings and I know that you have been working on this idea of uh, seeing as believing which is sort of working at intersections of retinal impairment and uh, viral infections so we wanted to think about that but we also wanted to think about how the surveillance of the community within medical practices which is monitoring control and testing has been basically dependent so much on the visibilization of the virus or the visualization of the virus and the virus is something that is basically imperceptible to the naked eye so we wanted to think about how basically questions of of uh, visualizing or vis- visualization play into fo- formations of knowledge about the virus uh, and play into how we perceive the pandemic largely and so on,
1: yeah. Sure, yeah, so I, I, that's, uh, that's also uh, a great story that I, I, is very, <laughs> I'm very fond of. So I started studying the infection in the retina when I got here at UCSB. So we formed a partnership with one of my colleagues, Dennis Click and we saw that there was kind of a, a lack of information of how viruses were affecting the retina and one of the reasons was because it's very difficult to study the retina right it's it's if you are going to take samples from patients it's pretty invasive right and getting kind of tissue to study it in the lab is pretty limiting it's like you have to go through you know, patients that are either donating their eyes uh, for research or, you know, it's like a healthy person is not going to probably donate a part of their retina so that I can infect it in the lab. So he, Dennis had a um, great system, which is basically this 3D culture of cells that resemble a developing retina. So these are stem cells that are basically, let's call it trained. To become retina cells and to grow in these self assembling 3D structures that are going to look again as what a developing retina in a human would look like. So that gave us a great source of tissue or a source of cells for us to study how was the retina disrupted and affected when it was affected by or infected by a virus. So we chose two viruses. One is uh, the Zika virus, which I have studied before. And we know that the babies that are born from mothers that are exposed during pregnancy have, of course, the um characteristic microcephaly, so a smaller size in their brain. But many of them also have eye defects. And initially, people thought that it was just because uh, the brain is not Um, developing correctly, this is also going to affect the development of the eye. But there's been actually some cases where the microcephaly is not um, very evident, or there is even absence of microcephaly, and the babies are still affected in their eyes. Many of them are blind. So we thought, well, that would be a great system for us to study how does this virus affect the development of the retina, especially because we can follow and track the development of the retina throughout some time but it was very hard for us to track the cells that were infected so we're talking about a tissue right so it's, they're, they're tiny they're i, I do these, but they're, they're really really small um, and identifying the cells that were infected was very very hard so we decided to use some methods that would allow us to see which cells in the um in the retina in this developing retina were infected So we basically use um antibodies so we use a method that is called um immunohistochemistry or immunofluorescence and what we do is we use antibodies right like the ones that you develop when you are sick that are going to go and recognize some proteins from a from a pathogen so we use those antibodies and they have um fluorophores attached to them Mm -hmm. so we do is we go recognize a protein from the virus and wherever that protein is recognized in, in cell, that cell or that structure in the cell is going to fluoresce so we can see it. And the reason why that is so important is because it's gonna let you track what cells are infected and what is happening to those cells. So one of the questions that we had was, is every single cell infected? Do some cells get more infected than others? Are there any differences in the infection throughout the span of development? And by doing this method, we were able to answer some of those questions. We still keep on working on it. But really, having that possibility of seeing and identifying these, right? And I tell you, this is how they look. Mm -hmm. And this, the protrusion here, is what they use to go and attach to the cell. Just by having that visual aid, you're going to understand me 100% better than if I just yeah, da, 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 da. <laughs> So these these kind of tools really help um, materialize the invisible, right? Is yeah. you cannot see it. Viruses are are abstract even, right? Um, if you don't know what you're looking is is um, Usually when I, when I talk to, to some of my, my friends that are not in science and I say, okay, what do you think a virus looks like? And they were like, oh, like a bacteria. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> they are way smaller than a viruses. In fact, bacteria, they're tiny, right? It's like yeah. they don't look anything like a bacteria. So the the abstract uh, concept of viruses can be materialized by just looking at their, their pictures, right?
0: Yeah, I think that that gets to something that to a larger thematic question that we wanted to ask you about your work, which is that your work obviously deals with a lot of different scales. Because you are thinking about, you know, on the on the smallest scale, you're thinking about how the virus interacts with the host cell. But then from there, you're also thinking about how that interaction creates an individual with a disease. And now that we're in a global pandemic, we're also thinking at the population level of how how many cases of disease create a different phenomenon. So we're we were wondering maybe if you could speak briefly on this issue of scale and how you approach approach it as you're thinking at any given time from the smallest particle to the biggest particle. And then also how you maybe see, just as like someone who is also living through the pandemic as well as researching viruses, how you see this problem of scale being played out in the public discourse and kind of building off like the question where kind of those different scales can maybe lose some of the nuance in moving between the virus and the the pandemic? Yeah, that's,
1: that's a, that's a pretty good question. And I must confess something that I hadn't really thought about until (laughs) you asked me. Because when I'm thinking about the different, the different scales is, is, as one of my, my colleagues says, it's like you put on different hats, right? So you you can think about the biochemical uh, nuances of, a problem, right? When we're thinking about virus-host interactions, we don't even think about the viral particle, but actually the components, right? When we talk about proteins and small genes and very tiny little things, and even sometimes even at the atomic level, right? And then how do you translate that to a bigger issue, right? So is you have to put on the head of more the molecular biologists and biochemists when you're thinking about these these nuances, right? Go back to the source, um, but. It's always good to keep the perspective of there is a bigger question behind this, right? I think I'll I'll probably answer that from from the top down. You have, when you're thinking about science in this context, you have to think about a big problem, right? So in this case, the big problem is, or that was, you know, landed on us, is the pandemic, right? So we have this disease that is causing uh, so many infections throughout the world, and discussing all these issues throughout the world, but we're not going to be able to solve, solve any single one of them. So we have to start focusing. So from all of the things that we're seeing, and I'll tell you something like, for example, what we're thinking of doing with the coronavirus. So, so you go from the top, to the, to, to, from the big one to the smallest problem, and then you have to bring it back into the context of the big, high, large-scale mm-hmm. issue. Yeah. So that's what, with the diagnosis. So now we're, we're going more into research and it's the same problem, right? It's we have the pandemic, you have so many people being infected, we're not going to be able to answer everything. Let's choose one thing. So we're going to focus on what is the topic of my lab, which is virus host interactions. We're going to choose one particular aspect of the cell and virus interaction that we can study. And from there, from that aspect, we're going to choose one protein, one particular component of the cell that we think would be very interesting to explore as a potential um, target for therapeutics for these virus and others, which is something that we also do in the lab.
3: Yeah, yeah thank you. So that kind of brings us uh, in a related way to our final question as well. Mm-hmm. So we are looking over uh, one of the papers that you co-published recently, which was using a model called CREST, from cas 13 based rugged, equitable, scalable testing for researching the best possible COVID-19 testing infrastructure, which considers issues like, uh, as the title suggests, ruggedness, equitability, and scalability, which are, to some extent, more practical-oriented problems that we have been facing during during the testing scenario, especially in the early days of the pandemic when testing was a big problem. Like uh, Lack of testing has been an issue in many countries as well. So we are just curious if you could explain some of these considerations a little bit more and the methodology that you are using for this paper and how these issues you are investigating.
1: Yes. um, So that was the one I I mentioned to you at the beginning. So this is what the one that is a CRISPR based um, assay. Right. And so we developed this method in a way that is very versatile. So one of our main interests was first to go around the limited supply of reagents that we had at one point early on during this pandemic. And the second goal was to be able to do it in a way that was cheap, Mm -hmm. that was easy, and that could be done anywhere, which is one of the limitations with some of these assays. So we have now, um, of course, after six months of these, there are a lot of assays out there. The majority of them are going to require the use of very sophisticated equipment. And mm-hmm. that was something that we wanted to avoid. Okay. Um, we also know that now there are some that, for example, uh, the little cards like the antigen test that you can just use and it's like five dollars and it's very easy, but it's not, it, has, it has a very narrow window for it to be effective. So we wanted something that was going to be very sensitive or that could be as sensitive as those assays that use sophisticated equipment and are, you know, hard to do, as sensitive and as accurate in the detection. And we came pretty close to, to be as, you know, as sensitive as the gold standard. So we use this equipment, or for, for this asset, we use equipment that can be run on batteries. So we use this little piece of equipment that is called a thermocycler. That basically what it does is it it changes temperature depending on what you set it to. So you can just have, you know, different reactions incubated at different temperatures for X amount of time. And it cycles through. And that's the machine that allows us to amplify the products of the viral genome when we have them in the sample. And then we take that and we use our enzyme, which is the one that I described as the molecular scissors, and a little reporter. So it's just a little piece of RNA that when it's cut, it fluores- has a fluorophore and fluorescence. So for for us to detect the fluorescence, we use a little cardboard box that has an LED blue light and you put the samples there, turn on the light, and if it turns fluorescent, you have virus. If it doesn't, you do. So the, the machines are smaller than a toaster. So the thermocycler is smaller than a toaster and the fluorescence viewer is like a box of tissues, like a small box of tissues. So they're tiny. They can be transported anywhere and they can be used again with some nine volt batteries and it can be operated with your cell phone. So that is an assay or this is an assay that would be very easy to do anywhere These equipments have been used in high schools regularly, and they're being used in the jungle, and they're just easy to use. And the other aspect of it is the fact that it's binary, right? Lights on, lights off. Fluorescence, non-fluorescence, positive, negative. It's pretty easy to interpret. So you don't need to do any plotting of the data. You don't need to make any graphs. You just see, yes, no. Mm So all of that is, um, I and mean, the, the, it, it fulfills one of the goals that we had, that was to make it accessible. Um, again, for us to be able to do all of this has to be approved by the FDA, and that's what we're working on very hard right now. And the other important thing is, even if we have a vaccine, mm-hmm. even if we have a treatment. Yeah. We need diagnostics. We need to keep on testing our people. We need yeah. to keep on seeing how the virus is behaving. Otherwise, yeah. you know, we're going to face what we're facing right now, which is a resurgence on and off and on and off. Yeah. So I think that this is not going to go away tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's not going to go away in two weeks. It's not going to go away in six months. Oh no. The, the virus at least, right? Um, yeah. The situation will change, but we don't know. I, you know I, I wish I had a crystal ball to say when, but, but we are in this for a while. So I think the idea of, of um, making testing accessible and more uh, available here for us and for other communities is probably, yeah. one of the priorities that we had. So we're working very hard on trying to get it through the FDA
3: absolutely okay thank you thank you so much for the uh, for detailing that process because that was really helpful and in general thank you uh, for talking to us today uh, and we really got to know a lot uh, which we are not really aware of because we don't get these scientists perspectives much at all so this has been really helpful
1: great well I'm glad that it works nice and again it's, uh, I love your projects too so <laughs>